So Glenn was so excited when they approached him to plan a cruise through history. He knew he was going to build an amazing experience for you, seeing the birthplace of the Republic, commerce, and our faith that inspired our founding fathers with the idea that man could rule himself will be such an incredible learning experience for you and your family. You need to join Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, Stu, David Barton, and Rabbi LePen on a 14-day adventure next spring on a cruise through history. Come walk where Jesus and the prophets walk in the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, Croatia with Bill O'Reilly, David Barton, Rabbi LePen, Stu, and Glenn himself. This is going to be a cruise like no other, and he is incredibly excited to share it with you. So you need to come be a part of it. You're going to get incredible amenities along with the cruise. You're going to be just going to be a fantastic adventure of a lifetime. It's going to be a memory for you and your family you'll never forget. This all-inclusive trip, including all airfare and gratuities, that comes out to about $360 per day. You just need to put down a deposit, and then you can pay overtime. Early bird discount of $400. Visit ComeSailAway.com and get on the boat. ComeSailAway.com. Go there today. It is party time, Mom. Once again, here at Studio 22, the Chad Prather Show. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, if you're watching it on Facebook, go over to YouTube and watch it there so we can make those numbers count. And know that you are here amongst us. And also, we want you to listen wherever podcasts are available. And if you do me a huge favor, tell three of your friends about the Chad Prather Show and so that they can tune in and check it out and, you know, get a little education. And, and you know, we love numbers around here. We're capitalists. We believe in, in you know, advertising dollars and things like that. So uh, we, we, we want to be... Big time. Big time. Anyway, sitting over in the peanut gallery today, as always, got party foul Steve hanging out in hey. uh, Steve Helms. Singer-songwriter Steve Helms. Afternoon. The uh, nowhere, From nowhere but Texas fame. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, y'all are handsome over there. I'm glad I can't see you. Thanks, buddy. I know. And, of course, the puppet master himself. Mark is at the helm flying this starship. Hi, everybody. Yeah. Good to see everybody. And, and, and if, you see, if you've watched enough of our episodes, you know if we're wearing the headphones uh, that that means we got a Skype guest today, and we got a special one. You've heard of this guy, you've seen him, and you've been reading about him. And I'm I'm just thrilled that he took the time to to sit down with us today via Skype and have a little chat. Uh, Associate Professor of English, University of Wisconsin, Doctor Duke Pesta. Did I get that right? You're Associate uh, Professor of English, yes, sir. And and you're one of those weird anomalies, man. Especially to be in an English department at a major university, you happen to be a conservative and an outspoken one at that. I've been teaching college for 25 years at seven different universities. I'm the only. I'm like the last of the Mohicans. I'm the only conservative Christian English professor I've ever met. That's funny. I've got a friend of mine who is at uh, Cal Poly out in, in obviously California, and, and uh, I tell him, I said, how do you survive, man? I mean, how do you how do you deal with with that environment? What's that been like for you in the university setting over the years? Well, one of the reasons I've been at seven universities, guys, is because I, I'm easy to hire uh, up until the rise of the Internet, where I'm all over the place. Now they know going in who I am. But for six, seven universities, I got hired really easy. But within a semester, they find out who you are and then they find ways to get rid of you. So I bounced around, was teaching at Oklahoma State down that away for a while uh, and then ended up in Wisconsin. And I managed to get tenure here in spite of everything. So I suppose that's something. <laughs> that's good. You know, we, we did an article on uh, the blaze.com here recently about you talking about and We'll get into this later on because I want to talk a little more about you. But uh, and this is where people are going to it's going to register and they're going to say, oh, it's that guy uh, is was talking about the basically the contract you make your students sign before they take your class. Because, again, 
if you're going to get offended by free speech and things like that, you might as well drop the course right now. And so that's a bold move. And we're going to, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. But, of course, you're the director of Freedom Project Academy and the host of the Dr. Duke show. Folks can find him at uh, freedomproject.com, articles. And you, you I mean, you've, I, I've been following you now uh, since I learned of you through the articles that I was seeing. And I know that a couple of things, you and I see eye to eye, obviously, on a lot of things. But there's some things I want you to help me understand because I get frustrated with with the world of academia today. I get frustrated. You know, I have two daughters that are in two different universities. And I told them, I said, I will not fund bad ideas. I will not fund bad philosophies and bad ideologies. And if you come home and you're spitting out this stuff that I believe is detrimental to your mind and, and your and your spiritual health and things like that, I'm going to bring you home. Period. Do you see do you see enough parents that are out there sending their kids into these these educational bubbles which are campuses, the university setting? Are are parents being mindful enough of what the minds that are being created in our kids? I don't think so, no. I mean, what you said is exactly right, Chad, that uh, as somebody who, in your case, is paying for the kids' education or getting these, these kids getting into huge debt with student loans, federally-backed student loans, most parents don't. In fact, I can't tell you, I've been all over the, state, the, the country speaking about educational issues, and I always meet moms and dads who tell me every single time I speak, by the dozens, yeah, my, my kid was a good Christian, she was a wonderful patriot, she loved her country, she loved her, her family, loved God, and then after two or three years at a major university campus, man, she's coming back and she's lecturing us, she's telling us that our whole worldview is corrupt, she's rejected their religion. Uh, so most of them aren't, and that's the problem. We keep funding these universities with our taxpayer dollars, and we're sending them to places where uh, traditional values, patriotism, small government, uh, individual rights and liberties, free speech, the Second Amendment, pro-life issues are all being completely and utterly revamped and progressivized in college campuses, and your kids are getting that one monolithic voice. Uh, there's no argument. There's no debate on college campuses. And you th- think about this, Chad. I mean, your dad, you're Chad, right? Um, but your kids are going to these colleges, and in many cases, they're dealing with PhDs, right? These people have four and five degrees, and you got to call them doctor so-and-so. And it's very intimidating for kids. And then they're surrounded by a peer group of kids their own age, who for the very first time in their life are living away from their parents in dorm rooms where every kind of licentiousness and political activism on the left is encouraged. The tremendous peer pressure of the cultural monolithic nature of these cultures, these campuses, uh, is very difficult difficult for most kids to keep their faith. Faith in God, faith in self, and faith in country. Those are the three things that are primarily under attack at universities. I'm with you on that. I've heard so many parents around the country in my travels who say, you know, my kid was doing great and then went off to college. And I know that a little bit of knowledge can puff up, and especially at that age, when you start to learn a few things and you get some uh, bullet points and some arguments and some uh, cannon fodder, you know, some ammunition to bring out there. And, and you come home and it's like now you want to challenge these ideals and these ideas that, that you've been raised with. I, I know the temptation. You know, I look, I was a student at the University of Georgia and right in the middle of campus, we had a free speech platform. Somebody could get on that at any time in the middle of campus, say anything they wanted to say without any threat of persecution. And they did it. And they did it. I think that's and that's just been lost in the university setting these days. We are at war with free speech. 
Yeah, and I like what you said there. Um, We have stopped teaching kids how to think critically. It used to be that a college education for the vast majority of American history was a way to temper that revolutionary, rebellious period that kids go through from about 17 to 21. Universities were places where we took those rebellious kids, these highly passionate and ideologically seeking truth kids, and we, we rigorously trained them how to think. We put really good books in front of them. We put really good philosophy in front of them. We honed their thinking with mathematics and higher level science as a way of channeling that passion through knowledge. Now we have taken those revolutionary kids and we have completely transformed the the universities not to places of achievement in terms of intelligence or skills or mastery of subject. We've turned universities into ideological cesspools where they take these revolutionary kids who don't know anything. They're full of of, uh, passion and they're full of enthusiasm. They want a cause, right, to fight for. We take those kids now and we eschew the critical thinking and then we feed them the kind of radical leftist ideology that makes them in Antifa members. It turns them into Black Lives Matter protesters. It turns them into the kind of kids we're seeing on college campuses all throughout the South, let alone the rest of the country, who are ripping pro-life signs and pro-life cemeteries down, who are... uh, pelting conservative speakers and ban- locking them in rooms and pulling fire alarms to drive conservative speech off campus. That's how quickly we've been able to do this here. It's incendiary. Yeah, we're seeing it on such a large scale, that just kind of that constriction that's happening with things like social media, where, you know, once upon a time we could post, you know, articles and thoughts and videos and, and these things that uh, conveyed our values. And now we're seeing such a, a just a binding and a, and, a, and a shutting down of those voices. We we here at The Blaze saw it happen recently with uh, our, our colleague Stephen Crowder on his Louder with Crowder show, you know, Carlos Mazza with Vox, obviously did everything he could to get him deplatformed, but in, in the long run got him demonetized. Uh, and and look, I you can put anything out there you want to put out there. I'm, I may disagree with you vehemently, but I will defend your right to put it out there. And that is the concept of free speech. It, it's being destroyed. And I love what you said there because you said, you know, we've lost the ability to do any form of critical thinking. People have no idea what critical thinking is anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I think that free speech has come under such attack. These people don't know what to do, how to process something. I've always said if I have a conviction and somebody says something to me, it's going to do one of two things if they disagree with me. It's either going to help me to change my mind and get a better idea of the re- of reality or it's just going to solidify my conviction. I shouldn't be threatened by either one of those things. Do you I mean but students have totally lost that, haven't they? Yeah, I remember 25 years ago, the early 90s, when I started graduate school, and this was just beginning to roll downhill. Of course, this, this had been going on since the 1960s, but by the 90s, it was really starting to sink in. And I remember back in graduate school, 92, 93, that back then, we still allowed kids to read good books. So we would put Shakespeare and Chaucer, we would put the Bible, we would put uh, Adam Smith, we'd put the, the best books of Western culture in front of kids. But then the professors would use those books to incorporate feminist and Marxist readings and all sorts of left-wing ideologies. They would use the, they would ask the kids, okay, here's the book. Now I want you to do a feminist reading of this book. Ignore what the book says and look at the book through the lens of feminism. But that didn't work for the progressive left. I was there. When kids read Shakespeare, 
and then they read some Marxist interpretation of Shakespeare that the professor was pushing on them, 99 out of 100 times, the kids had enough common sense, they chose Shakespeare. They chose the great books of Western culture. What's changed between now and the early 1990s is we're not giving them good books anymore. We have figured out the progressive left that if you put Plato and Aristotle and, and Adam Smith in front of these kids, they're not going to be suckered by Freud or, or Marx, right? They're not going to go that way. So we've replaced the classics with tendentious and political left-wing books and screeds so that already the kids are only reading what we think, and then we're, we're using those progressive lenses. And I, one of the things that I, I want to point out on your show, and, and maybe moms and dads don't even know this, when your kids take humanities courses as part of their gen ed or they major in humanities subjects, your kids are not reading history. They're not reading the best literature. They're not engaging in the best philosophy. What they're doing is they're reading books through very left-wing activist lenses. You're, we force kids on college campuses to read all books as a feminist would read them or as a Marxist would read them or an environmentalist would, would force them to read them or queer theory, as they call it. We, we go, go back to a book like the Bible, and we don't bother to read and understand what the Bible says in its own context, through its own history and culture or language. Languages. No, instead we take the Bible and we, we impose our own radical uh, agenda when it comes to sexuality on the characters and the stories of the Bible, condemning the Bible where it doesn't con condone modern morality and asserting the Bible where its worldview aligns with ours. It's very dishonest. How did left-wing activist forms of reading come to be the only way we allow your kids to read books on college campuses? That is a great unanswered question that no one's talking about. When you look at the educational system today, uh, all the way up, all the way through, and I want to talk about that in, in you know, the pre-college education in a little while, but do you think that, because so many parents these days are saying, I'm just not going to send my kids to college. I'm not sending them to a university. I'm not going to send them to these educational indoctrination camps, which in essence is what it's become. Uh, critical thinking, free speech, all these things have been eradicated. And as you said, you're just getting pelted with just licentiousness and all of these crazy ideas through peer pressure. Do you think there is still value in a college education? I think for a mature kid, a kid who's grounded correctly, the answer is yes. So, for instance, I tell my students all the time, I tell kids all the time, tell moms who ask me this, no kid needs college at age 17 or 18. Uh, it, the biggest mistake parents make is to take their kids right out of high school and immediately send them to a four-year university where they have to live in the dorms. It's too young. Uh, these kids have no concept of real life. They've grown up in your house. Uh, if they've worked at all, they've worked part-time while they were going to high school. To take those kids who've never really understood the world outside of an academic setting and put them in a college and a university is dangerous. The average college graduate these days, guys, is 24, 25 years old. So if you take a few years off, I, I, I encourage parents to you know, tell your kid, live at home with us, get a job and save some money. So if you do go to college in two or three years, you're not going to get into debt to do it. Live with us, save some money, maybe go down to the local community college where you can live at home with us and get your gen ed stuff out of the way for the first two years. It's a lot less expensive. And then, you know, many of those kids who work for a couple years, save some money, they intern at some place they like, they don't need college. They can immediately realize after being in the workforce that they can make money, they have cause for advancement, they like what they're doing. Uh, my advice is don't send any kid to college until they're 20 years old. And, and when they go at 20, ideally, they're going to have some money in the bank for having worked. They're going to appreciate the value of what real people do every day as opposed to the odd world of universities. And uh, to follow this up real quick, you know, think about universities for a second, guys. 
no wonder Marxism is, has a happy home on university campuses. Think about what happens at universities. We professors get up and teach three or four times a week. We don't wash the boards. We don't vacuum the carpets. We don't pipe the food in and cook it. We don't cut the grass. We don't clean the toilets. We professors get up there three or four times a year, a week, and we lecture these kids. It's almost like church. We stand before our, our pulpits and we lecture these kids in the church of progressivism while other hardworking people do all the real work. And we get tenure after six years and can never be fired. And meanwhile, our students at college don't even know the name of the janitor. It's a, Marx, it's a bubble of Marxism, right, where the elite educated uh, oligarchy class gets all the perks and benefits and everybody else busts their hump to make those places run and nobody knows their names. That's why you got to beat that butt, Doc. That's why you got to beat that butt. <laughs> I, get, I always catch flack. I'm like, look, I got five kids. You don't have to beat them all. Just call one out of the herd and let the rest of them watch you beat that one. And, and then send it off, you know, limp into the room and, and hope that that's not the one that picks out your nursing home one day. But, no, I, uh, I, you know, I look at this thing and I'm like, here are these people who, who spend 20, 25, 30 years on a, on a campus as a, as a professor. They've got the Ph.D. They've never really practiced their philosophies in the real world. They've never done anything to exercise it outside of that protected academic bubble. And, you know, and, and the, the thing is, they're teaching untested theories in so many cases, and these kids are taking it out as fact. They're not just untested theories. They're demonstrably false theories. I mean, right. how much more history do we need to see of communism and socialism and Marxism to know that it's, fa it's primary? When, when Marx wrote das, das Kapital, he was writing an economic treatise. Yeah. And by every measurable standard, it's a failed economic treatise. Who decided? What academic with a PhD decided? We're going to take a completely failed economic system that's left about 150 million bodies in its wake, and we're going to apply it to this cause of social justice now, right? Only on a university campus where <laughs> Their professors have never had to make a payroll. They've never had to care for somebody else's health care. They've never had families who they employ that they have to look after. You're right. It's completely – we live in the ether on college campuses. Marx, the Marxist utopian dream is a fairy tale, and the perfect place for it is the fairy tale world of academia. Yeah, and that's, that's – but, you know, I mean, come on, Duke, you know, it's 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 never really been tested properly. Right. You know, it, yeah. it failed in those other countries. But here in America, we'll just slap the word democratic on the on the front of socialist and, and we'll it's going to be OK. It'll succeed this time. I mean, I'm so sick. I'm sick to death of people telling me this and, and you know, hearing this over and over again. And I've preached it till I'm blue in the face. I mean, how much history do you need to prove this? Well, look how hypocritical it is, too. The universities are, are, are arguably the most Marxist places in the country, right, where uh, we have these huge hierarchies between the tenured and the untenured. To be an untenured faculty is more or less to be treated like a slave. To be a graduate student doing all the heavy lifting and the well, teaching while getting their degree so that tenured faculty only have to teach two or three times a semester. We have a huge dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots. Marxism is all about breaking down hierarchies and leveling the playing field. And yet, look at the top of the – there's no more hierarchy place in our culture than universities. You've got chancellors and vice chancellors and deans, and then you've got tenured faculty, and you've got untenured faculty, assistant professors. And so for all of our talk about being Marxist and wanting to support the people and being all about leveling distinctions, we are the most class-based, we are the most hierarchical, we are the most money-grubbing institutions in the country, even as we spit venom to your kids about how evil money is. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, that's can, can a great I tell you a point. quick anecdote? Yeah, a couple sure. of years ago, I was teaching a 
business writing class for freshmen and sophomores, right? So this was a course of business students who were going to be going to be accountants and, and marketing managers, that kind of thing. And it was a course of teaching them how to write. And this was in Wisconsin in February. It was like below zero. And these kids, they were driving me nuts. I'm an English professor. I'm supposed to be the hippie, right? They're supposed to be the kids who want to make a living. And all these kids were just talking about how wonderful Bill Gates was and how wonderful Steve Jobs was because he kept, they gave away a lot of their money to charitable causes. So the only rate, most of these kids had already been convinced by their sophomore year of business school that the purpose of capitalism is to give all your money away to social causes. And I finally said to them, look, guys, if you don't make money, if you don't learn how to make money, you're never going to be able to have money to spend. I literally marched them outside in February. It's zero degree weather. I walked them all around the campus and I pointed to all the buildings and I pointed to the stadium and I said, do you understand why not a single one of these buildings was named after a professor? Do you understand why that your, your business complex and the stadium, they're named after graduates of this university who busted their butts to make a lot of money and then out of their Christian charity gave it back. I said, you can't be a benefactor until you've been a successful businessman. And I, again, an English professor, had to take 30 undergraduates around campus to teach them that lesson. Very frightening how even in business schools now, social justice is trumping actual capitalism. That's a fantastic point. Absolutely fantastic point. I mean, and, and all the way back to this, this caste system, the educational caste system you described on campus. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic point. And people, you know, they, they just refuse to look at things like that. And, and, and I've, I've said for years, I said, you know, we've lost that ability to think critically, as we've talked about already. And that starts very, very young. You know, at the turn of the century, in, from, the, from the 19th to the 20th century, el elementary school kids in America were taking tests that graduate students in education today could not pass. I mean, these kids were taking some really difficult testing, and they were getting very strong education. But now we've replaced it with things like Common Core, which is, which is a nightmare, and you've spoken to that. What's going on at that younger level from, a, for a, from an educational standpoint? Yeah, you know, I tell my kids routinely, and I think this is true, as, at seven different universities, different big universities, small ones, uh, different parts of the country. I, I really do believe that a college education, a four-year college education, with all of that student loan debt, with all of the business of paying for college, they're get these kids are getting an edu uh, a, a, what was a high school diploma in 1970. What yeah. we're, our, our kids are graduating college, college, knowing roughly what a well-educated high school graduate would have known in 1970. We're moving backwards here. And so you think about what happened in the 1960s, where the campuses were infiltrated by radical leftism, and the purpose of education was no longer on the college campus, mastery of subject uh, and higher, higher intellectual capacity. It was activism. It was marching. It was com combating the Vietnam War and getting rid of Richard Nixon, and on and on and on it goes. Well, what's happened with Common Core, and before Common Core, you had No Child Left Behind under Bush, and before that, you had uh, Goals 2000 with Clinton. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter here. There are no friends of the American student in either party. And so what you see for those, if from Clinton to Bush to Obama was a a federalizing of education and a transformation of education away from skills-based knowledge and towards more political forms of knowledge. So Common Core is just the latest iteration of this. I ask you, I'll, I'll, all the talks, I've given about 700 talks on Common Core, 48 out of the 50 states. If anybody wants to send me to, fly, uh, to Hawaii to give a talk, give me a call, <laughs> I'll come. But um, in these talks, I ask the audience one thing. Raise your hand, mom and dad, if your kids are common. I can't see you guys right now, but I bet you your hands aren't up, right? Mm -hmm. I ask my audiences, raise your hands if your kids are standard. 
Common Core tells you what it is in the name. We're not going to give your kids an individualized education that's specific to his or her gifts. We're going to give your kids a collectivized education. We don't want outstanding kids because that's socially unjust. Your kid is really good at math. Mine isn't. Therefore, your kid has an unfair advantage from nature. So what we're going to do instead is hold down the high-achieving kids, and we're going to level off education. We're going to make it common. Lowest common denominator. What is the lowest set of standards we can put forth that will allow everyone to feel good about themselves, even if no one knows how to read? And that's what Common Core does. And so uh, what has replaced actual learning in the elementary, middle, and high school classrooms? What's replacing learning is politics, right? We're sexualizing your kids at a very young age. We're dragging transgender garbage into five-year-old classrooms. Kids too young. You mentioned critical thinking, Chad. Kids are too young at age five and six and seven and eight, their brains have not developed to the point where they can think abstractly. When you tell a six-year-old that he may be a girl or he may be a boy, depending upon his choice, he does not have the cognitive ability to understand what that means. So what you're doing to these kids is you're brainwashing them at younger and younger ages. You are sowing the seeds of a political foundation that is not based, it can't be based in critical thinking because your kids can't think critically. And on that foundation, we are not teaching them how to think. We're just promoting certain ideologies at the expense of others. We are libertinizing these kids. We are socializing these kids in very odd ways. We are politically moving them to the left. And we're do they're doing it now. Well, it's one thing to do it to a college kid. I get it. You're 18 years old. You're in college. You're an adult. Right? You chose to go to college. Nobody put a gun to your head. If you lose your faith, if you lose your uh, political equilibrium to a bunch of professors, well, you chose it. But it's not fair now when you start doing it to six and seven-year-olds. And that's ultimately what all these education reforms are about. What worked for the left in college, transferring knowledge away from learning and towards politics, is now what's been happening in the high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools under things like Common Core. And, you know, that's that's... You mentioned those examples, and people say, oh, well, those are extreme examples. But, I mean, just days ago, I mean, the, you did have a teacher that came out as transgender to, you know, a bunch of six-year-olds. Here was, in it, Wisconsin. And had no right? problem, you know, they didn't even bother to tell the parents. Or, the, or didn't even notify the faculty. This is an adult man who decided on the last day of class he was going to show a video to every student in the school about him coming out as transgender. No longer was he Mr. or Mrs. He wanted to be called Mix, MX, right? And so uh, without consulting his own school administrators, he did this to five and six-year-olds. Parents certainly had no idea. And how did, how, did this become a how did this become a national story here in Wisconsin? Kids came home from school and said, Mommy, at age six, what does it mean to be transgender? Our teacher's going away, and he'll be a different teacher next year. And the parents in, in liberal Madison, Wisconsin, one of the most liberal places, it's, it's like Austin, Texas without the pretty women, Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> right? It, it is radical. And so here in liberal Madison, Wisconsin, what you had was moms and dads getting upset because all of this happened to little elementary school kids with no supervision. Well, it, it's it's absolutely crazy. And if you don't think that people that this is a war for our the you know our kids' spiritual lives, for their hearts, for their certainly for their minds, and and you know they would like nothing more than to rad radicalize your kids with these things. And I can remember again. You know, I thought it was bad, again, when I was in the university setting as a student, and this is, you know, 26 years ago, 25, 26 years ago. But what they're getting today, that's why I go back to the beginning and I, I say, look, I, I felt like my kids were mature enough 
and smart enough to handle a university setting. We, we were very careful in how we picked out where they were going to go and why, very strategic reasons. But I go back to your point, and they've done well with that. But I, I did. I told them, I said, I will not fund bad philosophy. I will not fund bad ideologies. You know, my kids, when those girls, my oldest daughters, when they turned 16, they were not ready to drive a car. And I would not just give them the keys to, uh, you know, a one-ton automobile to drive around recklessly. I waited until they were capable and responsible and mature enough and could actually do it with skill and ability. So they didn't drive till they were 18 years old. What you're describing is something in the same deal. You're sending these kids off who are not prepared to go into this setting in an educational sense. It's like turning over the keys to them, and you know it's going to be a tragic failure. I mean, it's just not going to work out for them. Now, take your analogy about driving the car and transfer it to university, where on top of everything else, you've got kids that aren't ready. It's a dangerous world. Kids aren't prepared to handle it. And yet you're paying or you're helping the kids get into debt to the tune of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to drive that car when they're not ready. I mean, it's staggering when you think about it. I'll give you one more example of this. And this is a piece of, just a piece of advice I'd throw out to, to anybody who's listening. As bad as the classrooms are on college campuses, guys, and the, there's no doubt about it, the classrooms are one-sided monolithic progressivism, almost exclusively. You're, but, but people are watching what the professors are saying. How many videos has The Blaze done in the last few years of kids who fought back by recording their left-wing lunatic professors. So people are paying attention to the classroom. You know what no one's paying any attention to? Is the dorms. You think it's bad in the classroom where there is some accountability to the students and the parents? There is no accountability in those dorm rooms. You have no idea how the dorm life has been turned into a complete social justice experience. Mm. Kids are segregated in the dorms. Uh, When they first show up on campus as freshmen, girls are put in one room, boys in another. Boys are being told that they're toxic, that their masculinity is the problem, that they are assumed to be predators until they demonstrate they're not. Girls, on the other hand, are being sexualized and and fed a bill of, uh, anti-constitution bill of rights that, that if you, even if you consent to sex with a boy and change your mind six months later, you can still call it rape. The dorms, where They spend four or five hours a day at max in the classroom. They spend hours and hours in the dorms where the professional, the professional dorm leaders, these people are actually getting master's degrees in dormitory studies to be able to run dorms. And the entire program for a master's degree in dorm studies is nothing but unabated radical left-wing social justice policies. When I started at the University of Georgia, I lived in a dorm, uh, 10 floors, and it, that was the first year they integrated it. Every other floor was boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. And I thought, even at that age, what could go wrong, <laughs> right? And so, you know, I still say, when lived, I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to this day that grace abounded to the chief of sinners living on the 10th floor of Russell Hall because it was, it was an, it, I can't imagine being in that setting. I know how I was with raging hormones at 18 and 19 years old. And there I was, and, and you know, I can't imagine this environment. You can't – and let's just get into that for a second. I mean you're living in a day and age in, in the wake of this Me Too movement fiasco and everything from outrageous pride parades to just everything that can be thrown at you in every single way. You, you, you can't ask somebody out on a date. You can't flirt with anybody these days. 
And you hit the hypocrisy right on the head. So the universities are telling kids at one and the same time, first, that in the dorm rooms, we are not going to dis- distinguish between men and women. We're going to allow you, when you get to, to campus, if, you wanna, if you're a boy who wants to room with a girl, we'll room you with a girl who wants to live in the same room with a boy. If you want to have showers and bathrooms that are available to men and women, we can't discriminate against men and women. We can't treat people differently. These are the same universities. Then turn around and have 10 different graduations ceremonies segregating everybody else. A great story in the news at Virginia Tech just this May. Virginia Tech had over 10 different graduate ceremonies. So black kids can go to a black-only graduation, Native American kids, transgender kids got their own uh, uh, graduation ceremony. The same people telling you that we can't treat anybody different when it comes to sex are telling you we must treat people different and literally segregate them when it comes to race. How's that for lack of critical thinking and total hypocrisy? <laughs> Let's talk about this contract. You make, so do you make all of your students sign this before you begin a semester, before you begin yeah. a class let, with them? Yes, sir. The first day of class, before I do anything else, I go through this list of rules and regulations, and I ask them to sign it. Uh, and not only do they sign it, but they at eight different points have to initial that they understand specific provisions on the contract. I don't have words strong enough to tell you how much I love the way you worded this thing. And I want to read I just the, the statement of purpose. It says in this course and, and people that are listening to this show, if you haven't heard this yet or read this yet, you're going to you're going to cheer. You're going to love it because it's so good. It says in this course, we study literature from cultures that existed before you were born. And talking to students, their world is not our world. Their beliefs may not be our beliefs. No one asks you to believe or endorse any premise, attitude, precept, theology, political system, or ideology contained in these books or expressed in class. Nor will you ever lose points or be docked grades because of your opinion, written, oral, or otherwise. will not malign or trivialize these texts because they do not always parrot our values. will not assume these books are racist, sexist, or homophobic because of the period in which they were written or because of the race, class, gender, or religion of the authors. People who approach alien cultures with such preconceived notions are bigots, masquerading as critically sophisticated advocates, often in the name of, quote, social justice. Persons who so diminish the past are neither social nor just, especially when they compel students to adopt their biases. How is that received by the students? You know, you would be surprised. I, I, I get a lot of liberal kids in my classes who take my classes again and again, not because they always agree with me, because they are just gratified to hear a different perspective. For the last four semesters I've offered this, when I, when I start reading this, literally I have had one or two people every time, first day of class, one or two students go, oh, what other classes do you teach or how do you get away with this? I mean, the kids recognize, even the really liberal kids recognize how one-sided this is. And, you know, so I get real liberal, the, the real social justice warrior kids, I've got a reputation now for doing this, right? Yeah. They don't, they stay away. The ones who are intolerant stay away. But I'm amazed at how many liberal kids I get, progressive kids, who want to fight. They want to ha- listen to other people speak. They want to have a chance to, so- they want a chance to argue against conservative speakers. And they don't get that chance in their other classrooms because the conservatives are all silenced. In my class, they can go at each other. In my class, they can talk to each other. It's a big deal. I mean, we, uh, for a conservative Christian guy who completely sticks out like a sore thumb on a college campus, uh, my classes are more friendly to liberals than liberal classes are. That's amazing. And, and I can see that. Like, I, I can see that, I can see that, um, I, 
would think that by and large, most of them would welcome the honesty of that and say, yeah, we want to we want to engage in that. I truly believe that students in that age, um, I think they desire that. I, I think they do desire it. First of all, I have this I have this contention that I think that the reason people are so easily offended in our culture today is because they've never really been challenged. They've and I think I think we all want to have a struggle. We all want to have that thing that happened in our life that that kind of the pain point that identified us. And by and large, our kids these days they've never struggled for anything. I mean, they just they've never. They, and so now they've got to find something that, that they can identify as an offense. And they've gotten so easily offended. And so you come right out. And I love it in, in this thing in bold print. It says, please drop the class immediately if you're triggered by free speech. You know, the free exchange of ideas are people who express and defend ideas or opinions that differ from your own. I mean, you, you're straight right up front with them. Drop the class. And, you know, the nice thing about that statement is, is that it doesn't have to apply to anybody. If you happen to I've never 25 years of teaching, I've never had a conservative kid who tried to shut down anybody else. It's almost always the liberal kids. But my statement is neutral. If I ever get a conservative Christian kid who wants to try to silence other people, I'm going to slap him down the same way this contract slaps down anybody else. (laughs) And you raise something really interesting. It's not just the kids who've never had to struggle. It's the professors. Think about it. Most of us started school when we were five years old. We graduated high school, went and got a four-year degree, immediately went into a, a master's program another two years, immediately went into a PhD program six or seven years later. We're 30 years old. We've only known school our whole life, and then we get jobs in universities. The kids, many of my students, have much more life experience than professors who've been tenured for 40 years. And so it's not just a matter of... Uh, many of our students do want that. They want to wrestle a little bit. Kids go to college because they want to wrestle. They want to wrestle ideas. They want to sort of test the limits of what they know. They want to push back. And what the universities have done is that we've, we've taken these kids and we're treating them like they're babies. You mentioned microaggressions. You might mention kids getting, be, uh, getting offended by little things. It is a testament to how far Western culture has come that there are so few actual macroaggressions yeah. in our country when it comes to race or class or gender that they don't even bother with those anymore, that we're teaching kids to treat microaggressions as if they were full-blown racial incidents. And that's what's so skewed about this. The smaller the racial offense, the more we magnify it on college campuses because we don't have any real examples of hate speech or real genuine racism to go after anymore. And that's why these kids are being, some of these kids are being trained to be so, so sensitive. The progressive left on college campuses needs racism to be around, needs to be able to point to sexism or else they're out of business. They don't have ideas, they just have politics. And so we're looking for smaller and smaller instances of racial aggression or, or insensitivity and we blow them up into these campus-wide problems, not because there's truth to it, but it's about maintaining our power base, which is to politicize these kids at the expense of teaching them. Fantastic. Incredible. And, and, and you know, it's so the funny thing is common sense has been lost. And we talk about critical thinking, but my gosh, just common sense, because when you read through this agreement that you that you pose to the students and you look at these things and you're like, this is just common sense. This is what it involves. You know, I've always said when you consider Folks, for instance, in literature or in history, you have got to interpret people according to the times in which they lived. We live in a different time now than, say, John Calvin did in the period of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, they had different ideas and ways of thinking of the world. And today we want to think that these people are, you know, now we've got to tear down the statues and now we've got to burn the books and throw them down. 
It is a slippery slope. It is a dangerously slippery slope when we allow these ideas. And, and un, we're not just allowing them. We're promoting these ideas today. And it's not just – It's again, it's a, it's a hypocritical slippery slope. Look, if you're going to attack all historical figures – because they weren't progressive and woke. Then you gotta get rid of all of them. It's not just Jefferson and Robert E. Lee that's gotta go. Even progressive, Martin Luther King, we had a, the Blaze covered this story, right? Yeah. Like, uh, a undercover reporter reported some really unflattering things about Martin Luther King, including misogyny and uh, abetting rape or the accusation of rape. And we've known for a long time that King was a philanderer. We've known for a long time that he plagiarized his part of his PhD dissertation. But if you're gonna get rid of everybody who was not sufficiently woke, then nobody's left. I'll give you an example of this. So, okay, you know, uh, Christopher Columbus is bad because of the things that he did, right? He was a, he, he didn't treat people of different races the same way. He was a colonialist. All right, fine. He's got to go. And then yet we replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day, right? And so when do we start to look at how Indians were slaughtering other Indians before white men ever got here, right? So if we're going to hold certain groups responsible for killing and not others, and one more example of this, why is Planned Parenthood allowed to stand? Planned Parenthood was found by a rabid eugenicist by the name of Margaret Sanger in the 1930s. Her racial plan was very much like Hitler's. She wanted abortion to be legal to get rid of black and brown skinned babies. All right, if General Lee has to go because he fought for the wrong side in the Civil War, doesn't Margaret Sanger have to go? And if everything that derives from people like Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves, of course, right? If Jefferson must be uh, annihilated from culture and every aspect of Jefferson's philosophy, including the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, if they are now nullified because of his slave owning, how is is it that Planned Parenthood is celebrated by the same lefties, even when its founder was as big of a racist 200 years later than they were in the colonial days? Dr. Duke Pesce, you might be my new best friend, actually. I, I think we, yeah, I, it's, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. I encourage everybody to go follow uh, Dr. Duke on Twitter. You can find him on Twitter at Duke Pesta. That's P-E-S-T-A. And uh, I, I, I'm telling you, the articles that are there, the Dr. Duke show, it, folks need to really – they need to get in on board and follow at what you're saying because you, you, are, you are spitting some serious education. That, it, that It's amazing to me that people don't see through the smoke and mirrors that the left has, has built up for so long. Well, that's what's so dangerous about campuses, right? They are insulated little fortresses uh, where once you graduate, you don't go back again. I, every mom and dad that we started the show by talking about this, every mom and dad who sends their kid to college hasn't probably been back other than to drop their kid off since they went to college. You don't see what's happening there. And you know what kids are. You know, Chad, I'm sure your kids are the same way. When your kids come back from college, are they just dying to sit down with dad and have a cup of tea and tell you all about what they heard in the classroom today? No. At that age, they don't want to talk about it. They, they come home and they, they want to hang out with their friends or they want to sleep, sleep, sleep because they're tired and eat. But here's the thing. At that age, when they go to these campuses, they're walled off. And what happens on these campuses is walled off. And what goes on in the dorms is worse than what happens in the classroom. And so when they come home then, they don't always talk to the parents about what's going on. And so mom and dad have no idea until it comes time for graduation. And all of a sudden, your daughter is taking male hormone shots. She's got a mustache, and she's moving in with another woman. And this is the kind of stuff that you had no inkling it was ever going to happen until it happens. That's how really successfully the universities have been allowed to inspire 
ensconce what they do. These are most of these universities, the one I teach at, it's a public university. We pay for it. It belongs to us. And yet we have no say. Uh, the the even even Republican states like Texas and and we we have a in Wisconsin we have a Republican Assembly and a Republican Senate. Whenever the universities ask us for more money, the Republicans in charge just give it to them. There's no accountability ideologically for what universities are doing. We could go on and on. The, the website is freedomproject.com. As I said, follow Dr. Duke. Tune into the Dr. Duke Show. Doc, we're praying for you, man. You are on the front thank lines. You. No, thank you very much, Chad. If I could ever come back, I'd love to. And the Dr. Duke Show, just a quick word about that. It's a one-hour podcast. It's absolutely free. And it's this kind of educational information. We cover everything from pre-kindergarten all the way to grad school. We do the most important stories of the week. Many of them we take right from the pages of The Blaze. And we break down what's going on in education. It's a one-hour week show, drdukeshow.com. Check us out if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Do that, folks. Hey, parents, wake up. You've got to. You want to educate yourself. You want to stay. You want to stay aware, because let's face it. You're right. You, you know how many times are we going in and sitting in on a lecture and just hearing what our kids are hearing? We, we're not. We're dropping the kids off. We're helping them move into the dorm or the apartment, and we're driving off. So, uh, Doc, keep doing what you're doing, man. I, I'll tell you, it's it's fantastic, and you just so much knowledge and wisdom that's there. We really appreciate it. So for the folks here at Studio 22 and, uh, and uh, you know, party foul over there, he's, sitting, he's just hanging out in the peanut gallery learning, getting getting knowledge just dumped on him. Lots of knowledge. Lots of big words. <laughs> uh, college words. We got to get you in the studio in studio here, Duke. We got to get you in here, man. I told you before the show that I, the smartest thing I ever did was marry a Southern girl. If I realized where I was, I could have dropped a lot of fixin' twos on you. I learned that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, man. Stay strong. Stay in the fight, buddy. We appreciate you. Hey, for the Chad Prather Show, okay. thanks for tuning in. You guys check out Dr. Duke, and uh, thanks for hanging out with us again. We love you all. God bless you. Bye. 